Well, let's get into it. Chapters 9 through 12. Chapter 9, the preacher, goodness, if I could start off well, the preacher must be self-disciplined. Uh, there are not set, depending on what church you go to, set hours. I think LifePoint might have some set hours. But they're not set hours that you have to study. No one's overwatching you, telling you when and how and how long and what to look at and all of these different things. So if you're a preacher or you're preparing a message or whatever, you have to be self-disciplined in the fact that it's all on you. <laughs> There's no one going to do it for you. So you have to make a schedule. You have to set aside time that you are not going to be distracted in order to get the things done. Because if you are a, a pastor, an elder, a leader of people, you are going to be in high demand. People want to talk to you about everything, whether it's emotional, physical, you know, spiritual, whatever it is, they want to call you because they look at you as a leader in their life and there's comfort in talking to people that they trust. So make your time you know, precious to yourself and set aside those moments to really study and, and, and get those things done. A preacher must pray and read his Bible. Obviously. <laughs> if you don't, are you really qualified to preach? <laughs> because you're not doing the simplest things that God has called you to do. Uh, if you aren't consuming the Bible with God daily, then it will be difficult for you to help others and lead them to Christ. It's, it's really hard when you don't know the Bible and you aren't communing with him. Uh, the preacher should read, and he should be kind of reading in a lot of areas, whether that's theologically, he should be gaining more knowledge in theology and his understanding of the Bible, obviously, but also when you go out and you become somewhat of an expertise in other areas, it helps lift the other areas of your life. So it kind of lifts up all, all things and it makes you a better person all around. And So yeah, read all the books. Chapter 10. A, sh a sermon should come from the text. Another quite obvious one, I feel like. The Bible is inspired. You aren't. <laughs> so, don't add to it. <laughs> Just because you think you might have a better idea or something, you probably don't because it's the Bible. <laughs> so, really, really, <laughs> really try and bring out the message. Don't, you know, don't isogesis it up and really, you know, teach what God wrote down, you know, had written down. There's a reason God chose those words, why he put the message where he did and why he made it the flow that he had it. So he must know best, right? Uh, chapter 11, shape the sermon. Never force a division in the text or add something to make it complete. Let the message come naturally from the text. Again, if God, if it's inspired, then God had a reason for it to be the way it is. So teach it how God wants it to be taught. Uh, chapter 12, be careful of your illustrations. They can be good and necessary, but do not let them become the sermon, nor let them be the main point of the sermon. Illustrations are great, and they can really add to the sermon, but make sure they're adding. They're not distracting from the sermon, or they're becoming your main focal point. Always always come back to the Bible and what the what the word is teaching. 
Uh, it is fine to make a joke or say something funny, but again, humor is not our goal. We are Our goal is to preach, and our goal is to proclaim what God has, has for his people and to shepherd. So yeah, those are the, the highlights that I felt were important. Um, what are some questions that y'all figured out in your groups? Bueller, Bueller. Yes, please. I didn't actually write down our question, but let me see if I can articulate it. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of the stuff that was in this is somewhat subjective anyways. Yes. So I think that will probably be the nature of a lot of these questions. So I'm just going to preface it with that, that this yeah. is technically still subjective. But um, So in Chapter 9, he talked a lot about self-discipline, safeguarding your mornings, how a pastor should read scripture, and, and I don't remember if it was in our PDF, but at least in the book, you know, he talked about like every... Every pastor should read through the Bible at least once a year. And, you know, so you just kind of had like some of these expectations and what your prayer life at a minimum kind of should look like. And so really what we were discussing is, like, where where practically does the expectation in, in terms of personal discipline differ for a pastor versus every other Christian? Like, we know that they are held to a higher standard in terms of, you know, they are the shepherd of the flock and they are the ones that are teaching. And in that sense, they have more responsibility. But just in terms of what your actual personal discipline looks like, like should there really be that much of a difference in expectation? We also gave the caveat, we know that if it is a, you know, vocational pastor, they spend, you know, their equivalent, just call it, you know, 40 hours a week of work time, you know, that is their job is to read and prepare sermons and stuff like that. But if you want to divorce that, I'm not saying this is just go with me. <laughs> if you want to divorce that from other like personal, just, you know, spiritual discipline, you know, how, how exactly does that differ? Mm-hmm. Does that question sort of yeah. make sense? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what should be the expectations of a pastor's spiritual disciplines and should they have a outside spiritual disciplines besides their quote-unquote no. work? No, is like, that what? How, more so, how, how should our, like, for, for non-pastors, mm-hmm. how should our spiritual disciplines look different, or should they look different from the expectation of a pastor? Yeah. Hmm. I'm, I'm not going to answer. I'm going to just speak from experience. Trying to do both is hard, right? Because mm-hmm. you feel all the weight of, like, you should be doing all these things, but then you have 40 other hours of yeah. doing things. And so I very much look forward to a day when I will have days on end to do these things because I'm maybe, maybe I'm just not as disciplined as I should be and that's the problem, but it is sure hard to try to do all the things that they're talking about and do all the other things that you have in life. And so I think it's a very valid question, especially when you're trying to flirt with bivocational stuff because burnout is not very far down the line. that over like literally three verses 
and there's really superficial sermons over entire passages. So, yeah. you know. Uh, going back to the question of should it look different or does it look different uh, in spiritual disciplines when we're going through that, uh, Whitney explained that the majority of those disciplines actually overlap into one session called the quiet time. So because you can do all the stuff in that a lot of time, whether it's two hours of that, 20 minutes of that, you can get all, all those disciplines basically in that time in whatever quality that it needs to be. Uh, and I think that's somewhat the case when you have a pastor, like his job is to be a pastor, so he gets this overlap with his career because it is it's spiritual nourishment to others and he's not going to be effective if he's not spiritually nourishing himself and the thing is when he's putting his efforts towards studying topics that he needs to be sharp on to minister to others and teach others he in so doing teaches himself and fills himself up in that same time so he can have a moment when like okay Jim might be preaching on like John 16 or whatever it is he's in and he may have a in personal interest like personal filling up in his preparation for his job, really, maybe even it's even in his office hours, and he gets his full quiet time in that time as well. Obviously, I think there's something to be said of like personal quiet time versus study time, and there's balance there. I haven't quite learned that balance. I know some people who deal with preaching and personal stuff have figured that balance out better, um, but I can't say there's an exact like between a pastor's ministering and doing his job versus being filled up himself because he kind of has to do both. In some cases, there's an overlap. Whereas for us, it's like, we're gonna, you're going to go nursing and uh, I'm going to be doing my forklift operating thing. And so our jobs, like, aren't, we're, like, obviously we do have to be spiritually nourishing ourselves up, but on office hours, we're not, we don't have to be required to be reading our Bible in, in the Word. It's not something we have to do. So it's different for us in that regard. So I think a pastor has the opportunity and also the duty to be filling himself up and the responsibility to do that more often than a normal Christian because people need him sharp. If we're looking at the... Uh, so your question reminded me of the qualification for elders, so I'm not quite saying it's pastor, but on the very general realm, taking those qualifications to your question a lot of those qualifications are he must be thus and so or not do certain things and so if we're comparing a pastor's preparation with our preparation or a pastor's level of study with ours they might not be super different obviously the pastor this is his vocation so he has a lot more time to prepare to read different commentaries to compare texts um, and that that's an obvious thing that they ought to do. But I think maybe a lot of it has to do with the pastor, what the pastor's um, maturity, what that says about him, what that's manifested in his sanctification. So, because I can't think of any texts that say like how much a pastor should prepare or what study methods he should use. And so I think I don't know, there might be a reason that that text is mostly just focused on yes, anybody can be an elder, but they have to meet these qualifications, aka their sanctification has to be at a certain place 
in which they've shown themselves approved. So be rigorous, <coughs> use what study methods you will, but you must, your maturity has to be a certain point. I would say that the, the one thing that <coughs> distinguishes between elder and, and like other callings in the, in the Christian is that they are called to teach. So that's like the one thing that would exclude everyone from, but yes, besides that, like we, we should all be striving to meet most of those qualifications. Uh, it went from the back first, so go Jeremy. Um, kind of going off what Katie said, like in the, the, from what I think also the question was, was basically in like the personal thing, I mean, pastors, elders are all just, technically it's the same standards as every Christian. It's just you're held up, or not the same standard, but we're all called to do the same things. They're just held to a higher standard of they're not allowed to be in that office, allowed to be in that position unless they have met that standard. But we're all technically called to be perfect. So as a Christian, it's not really any different in their personal lives. It's just they have more time to be able to do those things because that is also their vocation. But in a sense, it's not really a different different it's just longer and they have more time to be able to do that and then also through their vocation they're also building themselves up personally and they have to already be at a personal sanctification level like Gabe was saying um, but it's not really any different because they're all doing the same thing we're doing they're yeah. you know obeying the law they're reading scripture praying all that so it's not really any different it's just they are held to a higher standard and if they do lead others astray then it's probably because they've been slightly astray Sam. because of my vocation but I have to be like really really self-aware uh, and walking through like with clients knowing themselves and like learning about themselves and learning how they process and how they like da 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 promotes me to be very introspective and to be very uh, self-aware and so something that obviously the book commented on was know yourself as a pastor know your strengths weaknesses and i think we as christians need to apply that as well and something along the lines of um if you know that you have a tendency to think really simple things in the morning because you're a grump when you wake up then you should probably meditate on scripture in the morning you know and, and that's not even that deep i mean everybody knows that they're a morning grump or not so that, that doesn't even require a lot of introspection, but that's just a, a basic, minimal example of that. So applying who you are as a person since God created each of us differently and created our brains to process things differently and apply that to the spiritual um, needs that you have while not ignoring Psalm 42, which says that my soul, heart, one of those two things, longs after you like a deer that pants for the water. So, not just doing the bare minimum, but also doing at least the 
We love you. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to change subjects now. Good. <laughs> 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 okay. Go I'm sorry. Um, you know, just generally, whenever God calls to you, if um, God calls a specific thing for you to preach on, then read that. But if He calls for some, something that you read in your personal devotion to preach on, <coughs> preach on that. That's it. <laughs> 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 it was like, don't pigeonhole yourself into yeah. one or the other. It's, it's very much like Martin Lloyd-Jones flexibility, right? If, yeah. if the spirit, if you even yeah. have a text prepared to preach on, yeah. and you go through devotionals, and that's what you're supposed to preach on. Yeah. You better be preaching on that, yeah. All right. Pretty sure this, do you, you have something? No. Okay. We're good on this this question, so let's move on. You have the set, next one? Are we sharing the scripture for I think, like, is that what we're supposed to do? If it has a scripture that is pertinent to the question, then yes. But if it's not a, if it's more of an opinion based, like I feel like this Jared, one was. Jared brought up Second Timothy three sixteen and Romans fifteen four. Mm, sweet. Thank you. Anyway. You guys are awesome. <laughs> Sam. I did. Psalm forty two. Martin Luther Jones has a lot to say on this. Um, one quote: "As long as we forget ourselves," is one of the things that he said. I think that's a theme for him. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to even lie. This is a this is a practically, a personally generated question for me. What would you say are some practical suggestions um, for me on how to forget myself and therefore do away with a sinful type of nervousness that can plague my preaching when I'm not at Koine? Basically, when I'm around people who I already know, already feel comfortable with, I have very little like nervousness. But when I get up in front of other people, I. I can be more nervous because the root issue of that is the idolatry of status, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but is, but man, that's a really nice thing to say until you're up in front of another pulpit and you're back to super nervous again because you care what people think about what you're saying. So I know that's a, I know it's a sort of a personal general question, but I think there is some general application to um, kind of the, the council on topic there. So what would you say are some practical steps uh, as it applies to All right, the first thing is decide what the root of the cause is. And that was my, that's the first step of anything that anybody's struggling with is what is the root cause of this issue? Can you repeat what you stated the root cause was? The idolization of um, status. status and influence. Status influence, why? Like, why does that? Yeah, it's deeper than that. <laughs> yeah. Why yeah. do you want status and influence? Yeah. Because there could be an idol within that. Yeah. Idol deception. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's. Idolize the opinion of man. The, the, 
It's not even what people think about me. This is this is a twisted nature of it. If I if I just use this in my public confession. Hi, Sam. It's worse. Than, it's worse than that, in my opinion, because it's not that I even care what people think about me. I care about what people can do for me, and so. If it's only if people think well of you that they do things for you, right? Okay. And so that's where it gets even, even deeper. But how do you, I recognize that mm -hmm. I'm there? You know, you try to focus on Christ, right? All of those things, but you still have that almost uh, subconscious sympathetic reaction as you step mm -hmm. into a pulpit. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. How do you how do you really get? I think to, if you focus on the thoughts that, like the specific thoughts of what you think when the moment happens, and you reference that to what the Bible says and what Scripture says. Can you elaborate on like give like. Example. If you gave like a specific like thought process of like when you go up on stage, like what's the specific thing that you start thinking? Like and then with that, tie that back to the Bible and what the Bible says, mm -hmm. not just what like yeah. well, I'm scared about like what these people will think of me and then what's a verse that you can tie that to of like not having fear of man, focusing mm -hmm. on what I'm hearing I'm sorry, I'm saying like yeah. So, for example, like if you're if angst, anxiousness is wrong, then immediately quote Philippians four, immediately like on the spot without another thought. Megan, I'm thinking that if all those things that are great don't work, what's the point of your message? And focus less on like what everybody else is going to do or not do. Like you are not in charge of any of that. So like what's what is the point of the message?
that builds because you feel like the entirety of your dream is going to collapse if that one small thing does not go well because the the progression of things, that staircase up has to go the way that it is planned to go in order to get to where you want to be. And so I think, and I'm, you know, well, yes, but like, I think, but I think that's why you feel that is because you know that that has to go well in order for the next thing to go well and to get the next engagement and to, you know, and, and so I think the, the loftiness of your dreams is a good thing, but Trust that you're wrong. But just just trusting that the Lord is making the right connections for you. And even if it doesn't go the way that you planned, maybe it was the way that it needed to go for that person to have the right view of you that they need to have, even if that's not what you thought it would be, you know. Um, I think something that I find helpful is always like sometimes you're just in the middle of that emotion and it's like kind of overwhelming you and taking you over. So you have to like transition from that to being very present and just embracing those emotions that you're feeling right then and there, just like truly feeling it and not like trying to run away from it. And like, I don't know, I, I would say it's like turning on your unconscious like fears and then controlling it with your conscious and just like being present with the emotions and the fears and then slowly transitioning it into <coughs> something much more manageable. We're going to move on from this topic. Uh, <laughs> and I was shot. I'm sorry. I have had my hand up for a long time. Yes, no, you yes. haven't. You just lifted it up like two not minutes sure. ago. Not sure. Josh. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. So, I think um, I had this question in um, chapter 10, and then when I reviewed chapter 12, I realized he talked about it even more so in chapter 12. I have that backwards, but regardless, the question remains. Um, talks a lot about don't you know don't quench the spirit, don't um, be so fixated on your system that you disregard the spirit's prompting. Um, and gave even personal examples in other chapters, not these, but other chapters. He gave examples of this happening to him personally. And so, my question is: Should the preacher interrupt his sermon series or the sermon? due to the impression he gets from the spirit and how does he determine it is the spirit? Sure, it sounded a lot like Good question. It sounded a lot like Mike Bandit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you say the question again? I'm sorry. Yeah, how do you determine, <laughs> one, should you actually do that? Like, cause he Should you do a sermon a series? Yeah, so like, let's yeah. say you have a sermon series, and then in the midst of it, you're like, I feel really convicted and impressed by the Holy Spirit that I should preach this thing. So you interrupt it for however long the interruption lasts. Should you do that, or should you interrupt your actual sermon while you're preaching, when you feel the prompting of the mm. Holy Spirit? And so one, is that something you should do? And two, how do you determine if that is actually the Holy Spirit and not just you? Does anybody else get Mitch. a red flag? What? Sorry. It's okay. I'm so sorry. Mitch. <laughs> um, I'll first ask, what is the purpose of having a pastor? It's to shepherd the flock, right? Um, obviously, pastors should pick, if they're going to do a series, they should pick one that 
is they think, based on their interpretation of how the flock is doing, one that will upbuild them the most, right? Mm -hmm. um, is it okay for them to take breaks? Yes, but I would say if they notice the flock is specifically doing something that needs to be addressed, then, then now your original plan for that series doesn't matter because they're doing something else that you have to address, right? Yeah. Take a break, address what, what needs to be addressed, yeah. and then go back on track, right? So it's all about um, understanding uh, your duty as a pastor is is not what you want, not what you want to teach necessarily, but what needs to be taught and how to lead. Um, so if if it's necessary to depart from your path a little bit to get them back on track, then I'd say for sure. Yes. Sure. I was basically going to say the same thing. Like shepherding the flock is your top priority. You could have a series in your head that would be good at the time, but if like something else is more important that the congregation needs to know, then for sure, that's that's what you need to preach. So if the Holy Spirit is telling you that, then you need to interrupt your series and do that. In my opinion, Lexi. Um, I agree. But I don't think that's a reason to not have a series as part yes. to that part yeah. of the question. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because, and I don't know if this is an appropriate application of the text, so let me preface. But um, in the Bible, it talks about the speaking of tongues during service and how to not do, like disrupt the order of the church and by doing something that's just going to confuse everybody. So I think it makes perfectly logical, and we should be try to be organized in how we present the gospel, and the series is a way to do that. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to be stuck on that. And you can't like break it if you have to, like Sam's done that here before. Chloe, you've been <gasps> wanting to speak since. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, I really wasn't expecting you to call on me. So I, I thought would, about not doing it. I, <laughs> I had a question for everybody. Um, I get a red flag inside me. <laughs> I feel a red flag when I hear the phrase. I feel like the Lord is really calling me to tell you this, yeah. or I feel like I feel like the like that very emotion-based like oh I gotta I gotta so deal is like well, I gotta get it on this one. <laughs> and and so and so like we I know we as a group have talked about the yeah. whole like emotional like like you know the background of that emotional side of christianity more charismatic more like in the feels like oh my gosh a holy you know that kind of people and i i get a red flag when i hear that but i also really do believe that the holy spirit does prompt mm -hmm. us and so i feel the red flag i think for a good reason does anybody else feel the red flag Where's the line that you draw in the sand where it's like, okay, this is... How do you is... know if it's actually the spirit or if it's just right. you yeah, being but emotional? Also, but also, like, yeah. is That's it okay to even say that? Is it just me that gets the red flag? No. no, no I, I think it's a good question. Padilla, since you were so... Can I ask you a really you, quick question? Yes, like, really, really fast. Would it be better for you to say, the spirit is telling me this? That would be my only question. Like, instead of saying, I feel like, would it be better to say the spirit is telling me this? I yeah. still have the red flag. Yeah. <laughs> so, is the red flag that you're questioning the person's, like, intentions or, like, their heart behind it? And maybe you feel like they're just trying to appeal to your emotions? Yeah, that'd be the, the interpretation. I feel like when you say, like, I feel like the spirit's doing this, you're focusing on the feeling rather than, I, yeah. 
I think the red flag comes from, I know people that come from that background. I need help. Can you help say what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. So basically... Come on, Pentecostal! <laughs> <laughs> During a Pentecostal, there's the idea that like there's continuation of many of the apostolic gifts, and there's like you have the gift of prophecy, and that you have the gift of like you know, a lot of things that are enabling you to tell like, hey, this person needs to do X, Y, or Z, or whatever it is. It's like a stranger coming up to someone yeah. and saying... Yeah. God's really telling me to tell you this. I don't know you. Like, I've had people but, walk up to me and be like, uh, the Lord's going to help you through it. And I'm like, what are we even talking about? I'm in a great place in life. And <laughs> like, so like, but they're like, this, the Lord put this on my heart to tell mm-hmm. you this. And it's like, yeah. Red flag. I, I feel like you probably didn't because that the Lord isn't. didn't say that to me. <laughs> yeah. Fadil. <laughs> okay. Last one, Jeremy. Um, our group was also having a question with this, but it was kind of more in the specific vein of um, in the middle of your sermon. Do you like what do you what is the difference? Yeah. What's the line between the spirit moving in you and bringing something up versus you are just wanting to ramble and then talking about things that are biblical? Yeah. So I feel like this has been a great time. Tonight. It's been a lot of uh, questions. It has been a lot of questions. And if you didn't have your question answered or you didn't get to propose your question, please put it in the theological discussion tag in the band. Created this. Uh, one thing I, w- I would say for the question is do you feel the unction of the Spirit and does it follow biblical ideals? Does it match up with what the Bible tells you? If it's not matching up with the Bible, then it's not the Spirit. Um, that's the first place to start with that. And then you can go on from there. You are really wanting to... Can <laughs> <laughs> I say something so fast? As fast as you can. Okay, there's a big difference between somebody who's saying, I am inspired to say this, and they're trying to prophesy yes, in the correct. middle of the sermon, mm-hmm. versus going on a tangent of like, we need to address this issue of marital unfaithfulness, and it's completely biblically based. They're not inspired to say something. They're just going on a tangent that is not necessarily relevant to what they were talking about, but it is relevant to a problem that they need to address, and it's just another biblical issue. And it's not just them saying, mm-hmm. oh, the Spirit inspired me to you know, prophesy yeah. this. It's like, no, they're just addressing something that is true, yes. and that's a totally different thing. Correct. That's, awesome. that's so probably the Spirit inspired me. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, I'm saying, but it's not, but that's different. Than I, just, I, like, I'm going to prophesy. <laughs> this today and 
there are parts of if you receive the manuscript that will be altered because I don't think it's exactly what needs to be said today. And so I'm gonna give you your best example yet, hopefully. So the spirit laid upon me. So let's honestly, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll dive in and hopefully hopefully it's more edifying than uh, what was wrote or what I would have imagined coming up this morning. Father, I want to I want to thank you for great group, patient group, a gracious group as we grow and as we work together. Lord. Tonight as we are on Holy Saturday here, I pray that our hearts would be enlightened, that we would love you more as a result of the text that we'll be seeing tomorrow. And I pray that the one living in sin would repent for the first time or the Christian who is struggling would fly to Christ on Easter in a way that they have not before. And so we thank you in advance for what you will do in the hearts of your people between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. In Christ's name. So tomorrow, um, we will be in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14 at LifePoint. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. When Nathan sent this text to me and said, this is what we're going to be in, I, my very first thought was one verse, you know, one verse. And then I was like, okay, well, i got, I got to go check this verse out. I mean, what's going on in Ephesians 5.14? So I go to Ephesians 5.14, and guess what? It's a quotation, which means that there's five times more studying to do to figure out what's really going on in the passage. And, and so I felt that for tonight, uh, it would be most beneficial uh, to prepare our hearts for worship by, by going through this text to explore the broader context of this passage. And so my goal here tonight is to break up the preceding verses in chapter 5 into three sections to really help you get a big picture flow of the logic. And I hope that it's going to be pride-crushing and Christ-exalting as experiences go for us as we move through this text. Right? That's, that's what I was, I was like, okay, we just dropped into the middle of this rich Ephesians chapter 5. What's going on? And so I hope that as you're consuming one verse tomorrow that the resonance of the other 13 verses preceding it in chapter 5 will... Uh, will enlighten your soul. So in these 14 verses, um, beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, let's go ahead and have that text read. Um, Danny, do you mind reading Ephesians 5, 1 through 14? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or, is, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become, do not become part, partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In this text, Paul draws heavily off of a dark light paradigm. You see that Paul is really working between the night and the day in this text. And so the first section, coming in the first two verses there, is that we are introduced to the source of the light, which is Christ, of course, who said, I am the light of the world. This is our Savior, Christ. And so Paul uses this light-dark imagery. But before he does, he, and this is wonderful on the eve of Easter Sunday, it is that Jesus' sacrifice is the basis for changed hearts and changed lives. We're going to talk about the darkness of the world and the light of the Christians, but before you can get into any of that, Christ. Christ is that first light that breaks into this world. And without the sacrifice and the offering of Jesus, there would be no basis on which we could have hope to have any deliverance from sin and darkness into light and righteousness. Verses 3 to 6, then, are all about the darkness of this world. Saints must not be among those who are living sexually promiscuous, covetous lifestyles. Beyond that, even, it goes one step further. We should not have one iota of filthy talk or crude joking. What is the negative reason that Paul supplies to this? What's the negative reason that he says we should avoid these things? If this is your lifestyle, this, this indicates that you are not a part of the kingdom of God. Sons of disobedience who perpetually walk in this disobedience are going to have that wrath coming upon them. And so he's describing the world here, right? But this is, this is the, the son of disobedience. If this is you, if you are consistently living in these sexual sins, then Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you. You are still in darkness. Now here's what I want to be very, very careful to say. I have no problem saying that a Christian can fall into sin and still be a kingdom citizen, right? I, I mean, I, I hope that you experience that even in your own life, right? I mean, if you are not someone who's fallen into sin and felt the weight of that, I know we talked about this in a group chat on Instagram the other day. If you have never felt the soul-crushing weight of sin as a believer, even knowing that it's forgiven, then, I mean, I don't even know what to say to that. It's just like the weight on you pushes you to Christ, right? You say, I literally cannot stand up to the judgment and the scrutiny of God. Right? So I have no problem saying that a Christian can fall into sin. In the broader context of Scripture, I think it is certainly easy to say that there have been great heroes of the faith who do pretty terrible things. Right? I mean, you go down the list, David, Moses, right? all of these people have something that is a terrible point in their life. But that, that's not what Paul's describing here. He's writing to a church. 
He's writing to the church of Ephesus and says, don't go back to that pagan cult. Don't live the way they did. Don't be, um, in the next verses, verse 7, I believe, don't become partners with them. Don't be a son of disobedience, right? That is so different than a Christian who does something really terrible and then continues to repent and come back to Christ and to love Christ. Those are not the same thing, right? Now, if you, I want to be faithful to the text. Paul is saying that if that is your habitual lifestyle, that's a big issue, right? There is something to be concerned over there. But, so yeah, when it's addressed to Christians, it's saying, certainly don't live like a son of disobedience. When it's addressed to non-Christians, it's saying, God's wrath is going to ultimately come on you because of your lifestyle of disobedience. If you want to call to worship for tonight, going into Easter, I'll speak very plainly here to what I see as a predominant issue within the group is don't watch pornography like the sons of disobedience, right? If if we are going to go into Easter Sunday, right, we need to be as holy as we can, right? Don't have crude speech like the sons of disobedience. So on one hand, if you want to be prepared for worship tomorrow, then set aside impurity and sexual immorality, right? That is the best way. You know, it's not an emotional state that you work yourself up to, right? It is being an actual legitimate follower of Christ that is the most God-glorifying call to worship that you could ever have. There's that. That's part one. But if you if you are in that heavily guilt-ridden state, right, that's not... That's not necessarily encouraging as realities go. The other part of this has to be heard. It has to be heard. On the other hand, if you have committed sins such as these, then there is only one light that we can flee to on Easter where we offer thanksgiving to Christ because he did sacrifice himself for every pornographic image consumed, every lustful thought, every evil deed, right? We, we can't divorce verses 1 and 2 from 7 and onward, right? The darkness bit can't, can't be divorced from the Christian who is struggling with sin in verses 7 through 8. And so verses 1 and 2 have to be that basis, right? If you're a non-Christian, you have to be found in that sacrifice for the first time. But the person who has become light is still having to be challenged to walk in a certain way. It's not like it's not like you wake up as light one day and you don't have to battle darkness anymore. You still have to flee back to that light, which is where it all started. And so, yes, naturally, verses 7 through 14, it's that light-dark paradigm, the light of the world. If you are walking as a son of disobedience with only per- per- perpetual sexual sin, flee to the light. But if you're a Christian who has fallen back into occasional, and I don't mean occasional in, in the pop sense of like very rarely, I mean occasional in the sense of occasions as, as opposed to a lifestyle, then flee to that light which is Christ. Notice that Paul does not say that you did dark deeds, right? That is very different. That is a statement of ontology as opposed to uh, as opposed to action, right? It is. It was your very essence. You were darkness incarnate. He said you were darkness, not you did darkness. You were darkness. You weren't a morally neutral agent who did some bad stuff. 
But now, dearly beloved, you are now light by nature because you are connected to light incarnate. Right? And that doesn't mean that that light doesn't have some dimming moments. It certainly does. But how else are we going to be refreshed to be that light if we don't come back to our source of light when our light is dimmed? So we are the light of the world. I, I thought of that statement. I never considered this. Christ says, I am the light of the world. And then he says, you are the light of the world. And I was like, what an interesting connection. We are the light of the world because he is the light of the world. And that's a cute little quaint saying, right? How nice is that? But, but guess what the light does? What does light do? Even more than that, what is light called to do? Light is called to expose and enlighten dark corners of sin. By both word and deed, Christians are to expose the sinful deeds of the world around them. And unless we want to put our light under a barrel, so to speak, our very existence will cause sin to be exposed in the world around us. And if you've spent any time in the book of John, the first thought you should have is exposing sin means the likelihood of persecution, right? That is the world's reaction in a lot of ways to their sin being exposed. But that's not the direction Paul takes this text. He doesn't take it in a negative direction, and I love that, heading into Easter Sunday. This is the perfect time for this. What does he say? It's in, in um, oh, how about verse 12? Verse 12 into 13 there. It's a very condensed bit of logic, but it's actually insanely positive. The light, as one commentator puts it, the light not only exposes, it also transforms. The light not only exposes, it also transforms. It is even possible for the light to turn the thing it shines on into light itself. That's, I think, the point of Paul's condensed logic here. Paul is going to substantiate that with a quote from the Old Testament-ish kind of here. It's at least a very influenced Christian hymn with some Old Testament flavors, whatever direction you want to go on that. But get Paul's point here first before we get into the Old Testament text. As a Christian, our light shines on people. And sometimes that can result in backlash. That's fine. But when that light shines on it, it becomes visible. That visible object can then turn into light itself and spread that to other people in the world. And so Paul substantiates it with this loose quote slash hymn thing. Maybe Paul created it. We don't know. But look back to Isaiah chapter 60. And we're actually going to begin in Isaiah chapter 59 to get a running start into the text here. Isaiah 59 verse 15. Isaiah 59:15. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. Notice these next verses. Notice they're also in Ephesians 6. He put on, a righteous, he put on righteousness as a breastplate. He put on a helmet 
uh, of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Verse 20, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And then, boom, verse 1 in chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord, Jesus, has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What is this saying? Isaiah in Isaiah, Israel is in this deep state of unbelief and unrepentant sin. The world itself to Isaiah is seen as a place that is covered in darkness for all peoples. God has to intervene if there is ever going to be light in this world. And so what does God do? God dons the spiritual armor for the very first time. Christians are then later called to be the eschatological fulfillment of this, where we follow in God's footsteps by putting on the spiritual armor, so to speak. But it was God who put on this spiritual armor first. God became the Redeemer that came out of Zion, and Christ became the light of the world. So Israel then only has one hope for how to become a glorious light to the nations once again, and that's by being connected to the true source of light, which is Christ. And by virtue of us being connected, or rather by virtue of ourselves connecting to this light, we then become a member of true Israel and have thus become light to the dark world around us. Right? Christ is not only true Israel, but he's the true light of the world. And you become light when you connect yourselves to Christ. And so what is the summary of all this then? There are those, there are only two camps, right? Those in darkness and those in light. But for those in darkness, yes, the wrath of holy God awaits. But on Easter morning, though, the light broke from truly the darkest of nights, and Jesus shines forth as this light for the world. And those who align themselves with Jesus share in this light. On one hand, yes, this means that you don't live in a life of darkness anymore. But here's the converse point that I really want to emphasize tonight. Because I, I you know, again, maybe I'm self-deceived, right? I think highly of you. Maybe I'm self-deceived. I think the majority of this people, the people in this room, are Christian, right? That is, that is my assumption coming into this. And there is more discouragement in this room over your light not being as bright as you would like it to be, maybe even as it should be. That's a fair comment. 
your light not being as bright as it should be is one of the most discouraging things can drive you away from Christ if you look at it wrong because you just get in your own head you just think about all of the bad things that you've done and instead right if if we're going to have a successful Easter tomorrow then we have to foster our connection with Christ, right? Maybe, maybe you're saying, yes, I, I do fit that category of like literally everything I do matches the lifestyle of an unbeliever. Then yes, awake, O sleeper, and come to Christ for the very first time. But if we are connected to Christ, we are lights that shine on others and turn them into lights like one candle that is already set ablaze connecting to the wick of another light. And how are you going to continue to spread that light to other people if you refuse to come back to the source of that light when your flame is not burning so bright, okay? And so, yes, thus one sleeper who has risen from the dead by the light of Christ participates in waking another sleeper and Christ shines on them too as God reconstitutes a true Israel in the darkness of this world. But Christian who doesn't feel like your light is as strong as it should be, come to Christ. Flee to Christ. Whatever state you're in, spiritually, emotionally, the correct answer is always flee to Christ. That is always the right answer. And we see this even in this text. Awake, O sleeper. That's a, that's a non-Christian. But if you're going to be somebody who's helping to awaken other sleepers, then you have to flee to Christ yourself. Let's, let's finish out tonight in Isaiah chapter 60 um, and then into 61, right? This, I picked this because this, it's, it's so beautiful. It's just so pretty. Beginning in Isaiah 60, 19, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for the brightness shall the moon give you light. Okay, commentators, right? I didn't intend to include this. What's the problem with the sun and the moon alternating? Light is inconsistent. That's the problem. The moon and the sun kind of have this weird thing going on where they switch all the time. Mm -hmm. And the light source in this world is not consistent. But guess what is true in the eternal state? The light is always consistent. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor the moon withdraw itself. How, how do you feel in your life right now? Has the sun withdrawn itself? Has the moon not necessarily given its light? Are you within one of those dark nights of the soul? Christian, keep your eyes on eternity, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the works of my hand, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. And then I, I can't help but think of Christ in the Gospels in the first two verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor 
and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That happens when you become a Christian, right? You're set free from prison. You have good news given to the poor. You have been given liberty as a captive. The, the brokenhearted is bound up. That is the transforma- transformative power of becoming a Christian. But Christian, that doesn't stop when you become a Christian, right? Christ doesn't stop binding the brokenhearted. He doesn't stop giving good news to somebody who's poor in spirit, the person who feels like they're returning to that prison. He doesn't cease to open that prison cell, okay? And so as we go into Easter tomorrow, there's no better way to prepare your heart than to be holy. It's the best way you can prepare your heart, but you might not be feeling so holy on Holy Saturday. And so you're in the perfect spot to take communion, to receive the benefits of grace, and to go forward in your Christian life. Okay? All right. Let's pray one more time. Awake. No sleeper. Father, I want to thank you for proclaiming liberty to broken vessels. God, you chose to take shards of vessels and keep them safely to shore to buy them to be your own and let the most beautiful vessels roll by and so God corporately we confess that our sins often prevent us from being the lights that we should be to the world around us God would you shine on us As Christians, would you shine on Chloe's friends who are non-Christians? Would you bring everyone back to Christ? That is the point of Easter morning, is that everyone comes running to you and to an empty tomb. And so, God, I pray that you would hasten it. Lord, I pray that this would be your time, that this is the year of the Lord's favor, and that as we enjoy the daybreak of Easter morn, that we would remember that you don't remember our sins anymore because of what you did on Good Friday and then into Easter, that we have a hope of seeing an eternal resurrection where you are the light because you have resurrected once and for all and remain a mediator for us when we fall into sin. God, we need you. We have always needed you. We needed you when we were dead in trespasses and sin, and we need you now as our source of light. In Christ's name.